Coming to you from Larchmont, Los Angeles, California, I'm Colin Marshall. This is the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. Today I'm here with Cynthia Carajata. She's the author of books for both young readers and adult readers. The books for young readers include the award-winning Kira Kira and The Thing About Luck and the... Let's see, what's some other good names here? The Cracker, The Best Dog in Vietnam. I always enjoyed the title of that book. She's written many books for young readers, and she's also written books, as I say, for grown-ups, including Outside Beauty, The Floating World, and In the Heart of the Valley of Love, which was the book that introduced me to her work because it kept coming up in studies of Los Angeles literature. It's a novel of Los Angeles. It's a novel of a Los Angeles, though, in the 2050s, written from the perspective of the 1990s. And, Cynthia, let me ask you this first. Seeing Los Angeles now of 2015, do you think do you think we might still be headed in the direction of this kind of apocalyptic world told in that book? I do think we might still be headed that way. Really? I'm not sure why, um, but it was always it's always kind of almost a, in a dreamlike state in the back of my mind that that's where we're headed. So that hasn't changed at all in the uh, in the years since 1992. And there's actually. So there's a question I want to ask illustrated by even the cover images of these two books. So the new book for young readers, which is Half a World Half a World Away, excuse me, and In the Heart of the Valley of Love. Both of these covers illustrate young people in inhospitable but intriguing looking environments. Also lost in their thoughts. Is that is that how you would describe these covers these books have? Uh, you know, I haven't seen the In the Heart of the Valley of Love one in a long time. But, yeah, it's it's obviously both two young people. They're alone and maybe a little scared and lost. So, yeah, that's definitely the way I would describe them. Now that I see them, they're very much alike. And in the text itself, there's a connection. One of the first connections that struck me between these books was that in one, in the earlier book, In the Heart of the Valley of Love, you have this drained Los Angeles, this inhospitable Los Angeles, a Los Angeles that has become third world in a way. And in Half a World Away, you have a journey to Kazakhstan, also a place I think Americans would consider inhospitable. In your mind, are these similar terrains, similar territories, similar environments to sort of try to get by in? Uh, That's interesting. I never really think about In the Heart of the Valley of Love anymore because it was so long ago. Uh, And I try to keep my focus on children's books and not think about anything else. But yes, now that you bring it up, they are very similar in terms of their sensibility. And that's probably just because that's my natural sensibility. The sensibility to put thoughtful young people in sort of harsh environments? Yes, I don't know why that's so interesting to me, but yes, I sometimes wish I would just write a really lovely, happy book, and because I love some really lovely, happy happy books, but for some reason that isn't what naturally comes out of me. They always have more of an edge. It's true, and it's uh, something that books for young readers often need, is, is a bit more of an edge, at least I found when I was the age reading these types of books, right? And I think you know, you say you haven't thought about In the Heart of the Valley of Love much and that it belongs to the half of your career you're less focused on now, which is the the non-young readers' books, I guess you'd call them. But I think I recently reread In the Heart of the Valley of Love. It's I would give it to a an adolescent who was interested in something good to read. If they said, you know, I heard of this Cynthia Karahata, what would you recommend? I'd probably hand them this first, even if they were uh, the, the sort of young adult reader age. I mean, do you think... Do you think that's a suitable recommendation? I feel like it would make a strong a strong read either way for either age category. Uh, that's interesting. I have thought of that before because I would love it if my adult novels were republished as children's novels 
and I've always thought I was going to go back and read them and with the the idea of sending it to an editor and hopefully having them reprinted but I've never gotten around to it and are you one of the writers who can who can reread their old books or do you not do that I never reread my old books unless I absolutely have to for some reason, but that, and that's why I've never gotten around to, to doing that. What is, what is so forbidding about that? I'm just worried that there would be so many things I'd want to change. I'd be very disappointed. I'd be, uh, upset. So I just haven't reread them. And I, I, I did reread The Floating World for some reason when I was in Kazakhstan. I had brought it with me and I'm not sure why. I don't really remember why, but I reread it then. And there were definitely things I would change about it. You were on a journey, and it's a book about journeys, in a sense. And, I mean, what's, what, is the, what is the appeal of the journey to you as a writer? You know, when I was young, we moved a lot. And that has just made me always feel like I want that movement or isolation or something to be in all my books. Um, when I was 25, I lived here in Los Angeles, and I didn't know what I wanted to do and I got on a bus and I just traveled around for 30 days and when I was done I knew I wanted to be a writer. Where did you go in that span of time those 30 days? Well I went up to Oregon and drove around, stayed on the beach, met some people, some Coast Guard people and then I took the bus down. I was in Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, in Arkansas to visit my dad because that's where he then lived and worked and then back to California and for some reason, seeing the American landscape in that way really opened up the world for me. And I just knew afterwards I wanted to be a writer. I, I um, got on a train and moved to Boston, where my sister then lived. And that's where I started trying to um, sell a story, which took about four years. Was it in your mind at all that you might be writing for a younger audience to begin with, not necessarily the sort of middle school students called young adult by the publishing industry, but were you, in your mind, a young person's writer. I mean, you're a young person starting off writing, but did you have a sense that you were already writing novels for young readers in a way? No, I never had a sense I was writing for young readers. I didn't even know they existed almost. Of course they existed, but I wasn't, they weren't really on my radar. But I always used young narrators, and there was an editor actually that kind of criticized me for that and I really took that to heart and thought oh I have to stop writing with young narrators but then I got really lost and didn't know what to do with my life and that was really when my editor who had been my uh, roommate in in grad school she suggested I write for young readers and that's when uh, young readers really came into my radar so how what was what was the process of discovering that there is this literary world as well it seems like it's they're quite separate the world of publishing for young readers and publishing for everyone else i mean how did you how did you go about finding out what was going on on the other side of that fence my editor sent me a bunch of books and this was before she was my editor actually she sent me a bunch of books and suggested i read them and since i was so lost and confused anyway i decided to do that and i read them and then I said, okay, I'd like to write a children's book. And she sent me more books to read, and I read those, and we signed a contract. And ever since then, I've been totally immersed in children's books. It's interesting. I saw a talk from you a while ago. It's, it's somewhere on the Internet where you described some of the research that you were doing for one of your children's books. And some interviews you were conducting with, I believe, a lady who had adopted a child uh, thematically relevant to the new book. And you said in her story there were things you couldn't put in a children's book, plenty that you could. And I wonder how much of life, 
can't be put into a children's book. It seems like every time I write a manuscript, my editor tells me that there are things. Now I can't think of any off the top of my hand, but there are always things that she tells me. You can't really put this in a children's book, or you have to change it. Or do you have a sense of the patterns there, or the sort of guiding principles of what you, what must be included, what can't be included for young readers? Some of what can't be included is just language. Oh, really? And I, I don't swear a lot in real life, but for some reason my characters do, sure. and、uh, I always have to take things like that out.、Mm. So it's mostly, you just have to reword things a bit. It's not like there's any serious damage that. The plots don't come to harm. The substance doesn't come to harm of of your idea, because it has to be for young readers, right? Yes, I think the idea stays, and my editor is really careful to make sure that 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 that's true, because she wants whatever your vision is to be what the book is. She's very very sensitive to that. I mean, she edits a lot. She edits very strenuously, <laughs> but. Uh, she still is always thinking about what the writer wants, so she's an incredible editor. So tell me what you wanted out of Half a World Away. Did the did this did a book about with with an adopted child for a protagonist? Did was the interest in adoption pre-existing as a subject before you yourself engaged in that process, adopting your son? No, I never thought about adoption、uh, except when I decided I wanted to adopt. And once I did it, it was my whole world. It's still my whole world.、Um, so it was really only adopting my son. I never thought about it before as a as I never、subject、thought about、matter. it. Yeah, subject matter, definitely not. So、yeah. when is the first inkling it could have been? Like the first inkling that came. So、oh, this is this could be subject matter. Probably about four years ago, and I wrote my editor a draft of Half a World Away. And she gave it a huge thumbs down, <laughs> and said I was using too much of my own、uh, experience in the book. Oh, so she thought maybe this should just be a memoir or something. Yes, she thought it was very either nonfictiony or adult, and that I should step away from it for a while. So then I wrote the thing about luck, and then I said I'm going back to writing about adoption. She didn't want me to, but I said I was going to do it anyway. And then she said, okay, then it's my job to help you、um, bring that to fruition. Oh, you take a break from one book, write another, and it gets the National Book Award. So that's not so bad, is it? It shows there's some there's some wisdom wisdom in what this editor of yours says, right? My editor is one of the most important people in my life. She and I are so deeply intertwined. Our lives are we're very good friends. We used to be roommates, and、um, she never steers me wrong. She gives me the thumbs down a lot too. <laughs> <laughs> how much of the How much of improving half a world away for your editor had to do with doing more research, not just researching in your own life with your own experience, but then, as I say, as you talked about in that talk, going out to other people who had adopted, researching sort of around this experience, as well as reflecting on your own. Well, you know, in a million shades of gray, there's a young boy who works with an elephant, and my editor told me that in order to write this book, I had to touch an elephant. So I went to the San Diego Zoo, and they wouldn't. And I spent a few hours with the zookeeper there, but he wouldn't let me touch the elephant. And then I found these people who let me touch their elephant, and I really did feel, as I did that, that I could feel the elephant's sensitivity almost. So that's the kind of thing that she wants. She wants you to feel like you're totally immersed in the experience. So I adopt. I mean, I、uh, interviewed a bunch of people, 
And I interview them wanting to know what their deepest, most meaningful experiences are. So I kind of badger them a lot. Some of them, uh, I've only had one person, I think, in my life who just said, what are all these personal questions? And then wouldn't let me interview them anymore. Um, that would be awful. <laughs> As an interviewer, I don't want to think about that. But, you know, you've, you've, you've talked about this process of gathering information, whether it's about adoption or about elephants or about harvesters or the thing about luck. As a, It's something that resonated with me, and I'll see if I can get your words right, but in terms of letting the information fall into your subconscious, you know, the subconscious processes it, and that's how it becomes something for you to write about fictionally. What is this that happens with the information? The information, I think, becomes, at some point, it becomes a part of my subconscious, so it's almost like a memory, and I want to keep researching until I feel like it is in my subconscious, because otherwise it's very stilted, or it's it just doesn't feel like it's flowing the way that writing should. So my goal is always to get all the information to be in my subconscious rather than my conscious. Were you doing this kind of research from day one, or for, say, The Floating World was, you know, your big your big trip, the research for that? My big trip was definitely the research for The Floating World, and I wasn't doing research at that time. It's only since I've been writing for kids, actually. I'm not sure why, but writing for kids, I feel like maybe I feel more of a an obligation to make sure that everything is correct. So I try to keep the details correct, and I do do a lot of research. And also, because of the Internet which wasn't around when I was writing um, adult books. It's so easy to research now. You can research the most, you know, you can research so much that you would never have been able to find when I was writing grown-up books. It's true. It's it's very tempting, very addicting to be able to do that, certainly. But I wonder, with... As, as you put out book after book, when, when did, was it, was it specifically, was it like flicking a switch? You started researching a whole lot when it came time to write children's books, or was it more gradual? I mean, kids, I feel like kids are even more sensitive to when you're BSing something than adults are, right? It was like flipping a switch. It wasn't something that happened gradually. As soon as I wrote the, uh, Kira Kira, I started, I started researching. I found these blueprints of, hatcheries on the internet or of um, of uh, factories. They were chicken processing factories and you could find blueprints of that on the internet. You would never be able to find that right. back when I started writing. So it was just I found so much and it was so easy to find that it just now it's become a part of my process. Researching is one of the most important parts of my process now really. It's one of those things that I thought about rereading in the heart of the Valley of Love, the Internet, because this is a world where the Internet never developed. And it's 2052 or whatever, and there's no Internet. There's not a lot of things. Uh, but I wonder, you know, is what... I know it's not a book you think about a lot, but were you doing anything you could call research to form to form this idea of what this bad future could be, this depleted future? What was What was informing that? I think what was informing that is a sense of paranoia. Oh. <laughs> Uh, I remember this great quote from um, Philip Dick, and he said a fly flew by his head, and he thought the fly was laughing at him, and that, to me, was the classic paranoid statement. Really? And that was kind of what I wanted to capture in the book for some reason. Have you had a fly laughing at you moment in life? <laughs> Let's see if I had a fly laughing at me. You know, one thing I do find is I'm always paranoid that people are mad at me, and so out of nowhere I'm always saying, are you mad at me? Oh, I see. And, uh, I, I Which think that that's, makes them mad. 
Yeah. <laughs> you say, why should I be mad? But uh, that that's probably the most paranoid thing that I go through again and again. And I noticed my son now. I've passed it on to him because he always asks me, are you mad at me? <laughs> I see. Well, you know, it's... These are these these things are unavoidable. These <laughs> behaviors get picked up, but it's it's interesting because you know watching Los Angeles movies from that era, from the early '90s or mid '90s, reading Los Angeles novels from that time. There's a lot of sort of apocalyptic or semi-apocalyptic visions, and I was watching just the other day this BBC show, the documentary coming to Los Angeles in the '90s, and they were so focused on all the smog and the sun glaring at you and the security everywhere and the stark rich poor divides, and I was like, wow, Los Angeles must have been terrible in that. <laughs> Era. I didn't live here then. So was it was it really that was it really that much worse in the nineties? No, I don't think it was worse at all. I'm not sure why that paranoia existed. Um, so but it was a, a feeling, not a reality. So it was kind of a feeling and a reality. There, there was the Rodney King thing, and that was kind of apocalyptic in a way. Was that before or after this book came out? It was the same year, so. Uh, the book came out first, I believe. Oh, really? Yes. So. One, of, one of the sort of prescient works of the of the trouble to come. But how how often do you how much does Los Angeles affect your sense of setting? You know, when the books you've written after this, do you, are you do you think about it as setting material explicitly, or is it does it work its way into your mind, or, or are you trying to get away from Los Angeles when you're not setting a book there? I'm trying to get away from Los Angeles a lot when I don't set a book there. I like to either go to the place and see it or experience it or to have lived there myself. But I definitely, the book I'm writing on that, or I'm working on now takes place in Los Angeles and Long Beach. But Long Beach already seems pretty different from Los Angeles. So I think I'm going to set it mostly in Long Beach and stay away from Los Angeles. I try to stay away from Los Angeles, but right. it's hard to do because it's such a part. I've lived here since 1990, so. Right. Yeah, in a sense, you don't want to have to research the same place. You're work. You're working in and working on, and it's it's all too much of one, too much of one area. So let's talk about a completely different area, Kazakhstan. Seven weeks was it they made you go there when you had to when you when you were adopting? You had to go there. Seven weeks was it? It was about, I think it was seven weeks and two days. Oh, my, more. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a trip. It, it's so vivid in my mind, even though it happened in 2004. It was like it just happened. It's something I'll never forget. It was kind of an awful trip in some ways because the translator, somebody stole the money that I had paid to um, hire a translator. So I didn't have a translator. And I don't know if it's a cultural thing, but people were always yelling at me. <laughs> And I wasn't sure why. I mean, I could be walking up a, the stairs at my apartment and somebody in the hallway would start yelling at me. And I'm just not sure why. So it made it kind of a seem like a hostile environment. Mm -hmm. Different cultures, different communication styles, I guess. But there's some things that will really stand out to people about Kazakhstan and the adoption procedures there. Why, for example, is there so much dealing with not just cash, but like clean bills, crisp bills. What is the thing with crisp bills? I don't know. That's something that I had to bring. I had to bring crisp bills, and a bank had promised me their crisp, some crisp bills. It was on March month. I forget what the bank was called. And then it turned out on the day I was supposed to get them, they didn't have them. And my boyfriend, George, was driving me all over the city to banks to look for crisp bills. And then I 
still didn't have quite enough, so I was literally washing and ironing bills right before I was supposed to leave. Um, and I'm not sure they, why they want them so crisp, because I remember one of the first things that happened, I was standing in front of a money exchange, and there was a Kazakh man, and he took out this wrinkly $100 bill, and he gave it to them, and they exchanged it for Kazakh money. So I thought, why did I have to have all these crisp bills? Did the, did the sense of research extend to your personal life? Like, re, do you, were you researching Kazakhstan itself when you knew that this was a country where there were adoptions? Uh, no, it wasn't. Re I researched just by interviewing people who had adopted from there. But I wasn't really researching Kazakhstan itself. In fact, that's an interesting question. I should have done that now that I think about it. Oh, well. <laughs> for, this, for this book, you have to get certain things across about Kazakhstan, at least. The, the, how things work there, and what was what was something that struck you as important to get across to the readers of this book about what it's like over there? It's not a well-known country in America. I think there there was a line in the book about um, about logic and not trying to to get by by using your logic, and that kind of reminded me of that Stephen Jobs quote, mm. Steve Jobs quote about using your intuition, and I think. That's what I would have wanted to get across, that you can't always use your logic in other cultures. So. Right, right. You know, when in Kazakhstan do as the Kazakhs yeah. do, I suppose. But, the I, I mean, we've talked a bit about Kazakhstan, but of course the main character in this book, Jaden, is not from Kazakhstan. He's from Romania. He was adopted from Romania. And he was adopted fairly late. I, I mean, I, I don't know much about adoption, but eight years old is, is quite late to be adopted, right? Eight years old is late, and the children are a lot more likely to have orphanage-caused problems, psychological issues. Uh, what I did for that was I interviewed a woman who had, in fact, adopted an eight-year-old boy from Romania, and she wrote me pretty extensive notes about her experiences, and every time I had a question, I would turn to her so uh, that was why I happened to know her, and I hadn't thought at the time that I met her that it would be something I would write about. But when my editor made me change everything, then I suddenly realized that she was there. It was like the door opened, and there she was. What else, what else is involved in getting inside the head of, of the kid himself, somebody who's been adopted from Romania, who's, who came to America at eight, and what he has to deal with? What else did you need to do to really to get inside that head? I'm not sure what else I needed to do to get inside that head. Uh, part of it was listening to music, I think. Um, I think of, of Backstreets by Bruce Springsteen. For some reason, that song, I listened to it uh, repeatedly, actually, during each writing session. And it was such an intense song, and I wanted to capture a certain intensity in Jaden's life. That intensity manifests in several ways. He has, of course, an intense interest in electricity, and that was that was the original title of this book, right? Electricity, and that's, I guess, why did that change? First of all, maybe that's an interesting publishing story. What happened with that was some of the sales force felt that it sounded like a nonfiction book. <laughs> and, Introducing electricity. Right, I thought it was a great title. It was a title I had thought of from day one. And, uh, yeah, so it was just the sales force. I guess the other obvious question to work in, people will be thinking about it, is uh, how aware of the Fifty Shades of Grey series was anybody when A Million Shades of Grey was getting uh, through the press? When it came out, uh, nobody was aware of it, but now people always bring it up. I mean, I, 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 even my son was like, how come we're not richer? <laughs> You've got a million shades, right? not just 50. <laughs> the the interviews you've had or the the times you've spoken it's it's it seems like you've been asked quite a bit about issues of sort of 
cultural heritage and how important do you think those are to write about for young readers? These, they're not young readers are not always so receptive to even their own background sometimes, are they? It's something that has to be, their interest has to be stoked in it, does it not? Or am I wrong about that? In their own heritage? No, yeah, exactly. It's something maybe a kid just doesn't, doesn't want to think about when they're young. Does that, does that resonate with you at all, that idea? It resonates in the sense that I was certainly that way. Um, I didn't know anything about my parents' upbringing, for instance, when I was young. And then when I was older, it was like my dad was this incredible treasure and everything that had ever happened to him was so precious to me. Uh, when he died, that was one of the things I felt most acutely that part of my heritage was gone and could never be recaptured. So uh, once I got older, it became my obsession. But then when I was younger, all I wanted was to fit in and everything. Right. So. But when does... I mean, when does that, all I want, this is, this is not just a heritage-related theme, it's, it's something for anyone who goes through sort of elementary, middle, and high school. When did that all I want to do is fit in impulse stop being the dominant one? I would say maybe when I was around 17, I dropped out of high school, I got a job as a waitress, went to the library and started reading a lot, and I think after that, I my path just went in a different direction, and I didn't care about fitting in anymore. Is it? Do you get the sense that when you're writing for young readers, they are they are the kids who care about fitting in a lot, or the, the or they're the ones that don't? You know, the ones that don't care about fitting in are the big readers. I could see it either way that either they all really care, or you're writing for the ones that are a little bit different. My sense when I interact with kids now, like on school visits, is a lot of them really are interested now in their heritage, um, more so than when I was growing up. When I was growing up, I don't think anybody was. I literally cannot think of anyone who was. And I'm still in touch with a lot of those kids. So, But now, a lot of kids will say, oh, I want to be a writer, and they'll already have this idea that they can write family stories. Right. Those are those themes are already present in their minds, even from the from the jump, from wanting to write, right? Yes, and I don't know why that wasn't true when I was growing up, but it simply wasn't. First of all, we had no idea what we wanted to do. We didn't. It seems like now you have to think about these things much younger than you did when I was growing up. Yeah, it does. It seems like there's a sort of a larger shift you can observe, and it's one that's fascinated me. You know, I. I study Korean here in Los Angeles, and most of the people in my class are Korean-Americans whose parents said, you know, you don't need to learn this. You, you can cast this off. And then they were like, wait, they got a little angry that their parents didn't make them learn more. You know, it's there's been a seemingly in America a shift toward, a shift away from everybody, I don't want to say assimil assimilation, but everybody being, everybody being on the same plan, you know what I mean, on the same cultural I don't want to say page because it implies being on a different page is a bad thing. But do you get a sense of what I'm saying here? There's less of a, there's less of a sense that we need to cast off wherever we came from and uh, and all Americanized. Does that make sense? Yes, I, I definitely think that's much more true today than, for instance, in the 50s when um, my parents, my mom in particular, felt that. She had to cast off everything, and she didn't even want us to learn Japanese. But my parents divorced, and my mom raised us. And my dad retained so much more of the culture than my mom did, and yet we were raised by my mom. That's why later, as I grew, grew older, I really embraced my father, um, just because he represented this whole world that we had lost when my parents divorced. 
I mentioned the word Americanization, but I wanted to bring up another noun-turned-verb. You've mentioned over-dogifying a manuscript at one point. What does it mean to dogify a manuscript? Oh, I was thinking of dogs. and uh, I put dogs in so many of my manuscripts because dogs are a big part of my life. And uh, my editor, when I first wrote the thing about luck, it was mostly <laughs> about the dog and the dog getting in a, in a traffic accident in this milieu of harvesting. And that was another one where my editor gave me a big thumbs down. She, on my first draft, she gives me a lot of thumbs downs. And that was, uh, that book was about dogs, yes. a dog. Was the problem that it was, about, it was about two things at once, like pick the harvesting or pick the dogs. You can't kind of go in both directions at once. Was that a feeling you got from that criticism? I think my editor felt it was an, uh, this new world that nobody knew anything about. Right. And instead of writing about the harvesting, I was writing about a dog. And so she felt, why are you even writing about harvesting if the whole story is about a dog? <laughs> I feel like if you write a book for young readers about a dog, there's a part of that that a lot of kids are already on board, right? They're like, oh, I'll read anything about a dog. You've, you've met these young readers, right? Yes. In fact, I did a school visit recently, and I talked about a lot of things. I talked about a lot of writing issues, but I also talked about my dogs and how they've related to my books. And afterwards, especially the third graders... Uh, we did a, we do questions and answers after the presentation, and everybody wanted to ask about dogs. Every single kid, I think, was asking about dogs. In the older groups, it wasn't as true, but certainly the third graders, it was just all they cared about was dogs. They're unabashed with their interests. Yes, they're, and, and so many of them wanted to talk about their dogs and just about dogs in general, that they asked me about my dogs and... Uh, that was. It, they didn't ask me any writing questions. They only asked me questions about my dogs. Do they ever have questions about harvesting these kids? Once in a while, someone will ask a question about harvesting, but they're really interested more in the dogs. So, what did fascinate you so much about harvesting when gearing up to write the thing about luck? What was it about how they do it there, in that world, in that agricultural world that that fascinated you? I think part of it was that they travel, and so they're on the road all the time when you're a custom harvester. And they're harvesting fields all over the place, so they go to the fields. Yes, they go to the fields. They start in Texas and go on up to the Canadian border. And that just seemed like it, it reminded me of being young and traveling a lot. It reminded me of being 25 and, and traveling out around the country. It just set something off inside of me. And I also felt that because they worked long hours... And my dad worked very long hours. So that was another thing. The whole subject matter seemed like it was already a part of me. So I didn't have to find what moved me inside of that subject matter. It was already there. Now, whether about dogs or about harvesting, I mean, there's the sense of the questions. It fascinates me what questions kids do ask in general. And I heard you say in one speech to that, Kids often ask where you get your ideas, and that strikes me as really a classic question that a lot of kids are willing to ask, a question a lot of adults are not willing to ask. It seems like a, just a naturally, uh, naturally a question a kid asks. Why is that? I'm not sure why that is, but they all want to know. I'm, I'm not sure if they're trying to find their own ideas in their own lives. But, uh, yeah, that's probably next to dogs. <laughs> it's dogs and where you get your ideas. Is there a sense maybe they don't realize how hard that question is to answer? Well, yeah, they think it's, it's really simple. Oh, you get your ideas at the idea store right, or exactly. wherever. <laughs> the paper under the ideas column. Right. Yeah. What, so, do you, what do you tell them? 
I tell them they come from all over, some um, the, a million shades of gray. I got an email from someone, a total stranger, and she said, hey, you should write about uh, the Montagnards in uh, Vietnam. And I looked into it, and I decided to write about it. So that was just a total stranger. And other times, it's, it's I'm thinking about my family. Uh, the harvesting, I was in Kansas to get an award for Cracker, and somebody just mentioned to me very briefly that um, there were some custom harvesters there. I had never heard of that before, and when they told me about it, I um, I knew it was something I wanted to write about. I When I was in the train station on my way home, I emailed my editor and told her somebody should write about this, and she was like, why not you? And so... From what I can tell, it seems you prefer trains. Is that true? I do prefer trains. I love the landscape so much. There's something about trains that awaken um, my creativity or something. I just like to write on trains. They give you time to write, that's for sure. Yeah, you have a lot of time, so you almost have no choice <laughs> but to write. I used to buy a lot of really stupid magazines and read those. But now I um, I still I hate flying. I do fly, but to be honest, my doctor has to give me something to help calm me down. But That Kazakhstan flight must have been a, not a treat. The Kazakhstan flight was not a treat, and on the way back it was even worse because Sammy cried nonstop, and it was just, I told him he's never getting on a plane again. Now he has, but um, but yeah, that was the, the maybe some of the worst hours of my life being on that plane. <laughs> Has your son shown interest in getting on a plane back to Kazakhstan to see where he came from? There was one time when he was about six and he asked me, can he meet his other mother sometime? And I said, yes. And he's never brought it up anymore. And I got him this, he plays ice hockey. So I got him a Kazakhstan jersey and he kind of wasn't into that. He's so, and then I was trying to set up this friendship between him and another Kazakh boy, and that never really took. So at the moment, he's not really interested in it, but if he ever is, I definitely would take him back there. I would search for his birth mother. And, uh, what does that take to find, to find a birth mother? I feel like some countries it's near impossible. Sometimes it's easy. What is it? What Do you have a sense of that in Kazakhstan? You have to hire somebody, actually. and Cash, clean bills? <laughs> probably, yes. You have to hire somebody. And there are certain people who actually now do that for a living. They will search for birth parents for um, American adopters. Is that, I mean, is the, are they one of these countries where adoption is huge right now? Is that just, is that, because I, for example, I, I know in the 70s and 80s there were a lot of adoptions uh, from Korea. So you have kind of a generation here and in Europe as well of uh, Korean adoptees. And is it like there's a generation of Kazakh adoptees in the world as well who are sort of distinctly of a particular era, if you know what I mean? There were, it was getting more and more, but I don't think it ever was more than a thousand from America anyway. And now the country's closed to adoptions. Oh, really? So, at least from, for Americans. I'm not sure if it is for everybody or just for Americans. But, um, so there's very few Kazakh Americans. There are going to be very few. What do you learn from observing what your son reads as he, as he's, he's in young reader age right now, right? The exact demographic you're writing for, right? Wimpy kids. That that's what he'll read. He he will read that over and over. Very popular those books. Yes, yes. And I find Greg a little selfish. <laughs> so I try to ingrain that in Sammy, but no, but he loves the Wimpy Kid books and I mean they're amazing. Just 
just because they obviously have have captured this whole generation of boys. Mm-hmm. Has he read any of your books? He had me read Cracker to him a couple of times, maybe two or three times, but that was the only one that he's shown any interest in. And he definitely wouldn't want to read Half a World Away. He, he, I think right now he's in a place where he's kind of shying away from an awareness that he was adopted. In general, I mean, I mentioned In the Heart of the Valley of Love as a book that could be equally read by the sort of young readers and older ones, but what books of yours do you think really do cross that line the best, that are neither just for one group nor just for the other, the, the crossover uh, novels in your body of work? Probably just my adult books mm. could all be read by kids as well. Mm. My kid books, uh, I like to think grown I mean, there, there's, I think, a lot of grown-ups who read kid books, so it would be more those people. Maybe Cracker, though. A lot of uh, people write me about Cracker. I think that's the one of where... Of all ages? Uh, yes, of all ages. I think that's one where people of whatever age read it, and it doesn't matter what... Dog lovers, or...? I, they're dog lovers, yes, and they're history lovers sometimes, but yeah, there's a lot of dog lovers out there. A lot of people who love reading dog books. <laughs> Seems like nobody ever went broke appealing to dog lovers. I don't know <laughs> I don't know if that's a true publishing rule, but it's... There are certain... There are certain interests you can always tap into with young readers, aren't there? I mean, there's... Which, which ones do you like to tap into when you're writing for them? Mm, to me, it's more what I feel interested in rather than what they feel interested in. And if there's an alignment, well, perfect, but... If there's an alignment, then my editor's more uh, encouraging. <laughs> more, more thumbs up on the manuscript yeah. then at that point. Yeah, more thumbs up, definitely. What do you find? I mean, you say you in writing you try to get more away from Los Angeles than to write about it. But what here do you find useful as an environment to write in? Does Los Angeles give you anything to work with? Not necessarily straight material to use in your books, but in any sense at all. For me, the, what I think of Los Angeles, um, my ex-husband and I, he did this thing where we'd go into the Hollywood Hills and he would turn off the... Um, the ignition and turn off the lights and go into neutral and we would just kind of float down this road which I'm sure is, is dangerous because anybody could have hit us but we did that we used to do that and there was something about that peacefulness that you can find here that you can't find in New York say and I think that for me at night when I write I kind of tap into that and I would imagine the city as well so it's much discussed as this convergence point of so many cultures. Does that is that an appeal for you, or is it beside the point? Oh, it's definitely an appeal for me. I that's another thing that I love living, and you know why I love living here. Sometimes, I mean, I, I think a lot of people don't like to say they love living in Los Angeles. For some reason, everybody will be like, "Oh, I love living in New York," but nobody wants to say I love living in Los Angeles. But I do. I love living here. It's, it rem, reminds me of the ending of In the Heart of the Valley of Love when she comes to the conclusion, Francie, the protagonist, that she, she can't leave Los Angeles, no matter how, and this is a pretty bad Los Angeles in the book, you know. So I don't know if you remember, but there's so many passages about people's gray or beige skin or the gray or beige sky. Everything's a weird color and a weird texture. That's, what, what happened, by the way, to Los Angeles before this, before 2052? Did, is that something you defined for yourself? Like why the city got so bad? No, I don't, I don't think it was, but I actually don't remember. The book didn't take place in the future when I started it, oh, and right. when I sold it, in fact, it didn't take place in the future. I had given 
a partial manuscript to the editor and then they bought it and then suddenly I sent it to her and it was in the future so I was lucky she was okay with that right. because she could have turned around and said no this isn't the book we bought something happened between now and then between 1992 and 2052 but it's not things just sort of went downhill it wasn't some catastrophic event in your mind no, it wasn't a catastrophic event at all. Absolutely not. But Francie, by the end of the book, she comes to the conclusion that despite all this, she can't leave Los Angeles. She won't and can't leave Los Angeles. And I feel like that's true of a lot of people. You know, they they may have an endless series of complaints about Los Angeles, but they're not going to leave. You know, it's it's they love it more in deed than in word. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, there's something about it that really draws me here. Um, We've talked about living in New York for a year just because my boyfriend really loves it there. But I don't think he would love it there as much if we stayed there for a year. Entirely possible. (laughs) I I do feel like people have a lot of falling out of love experiences with New York, but they feel like they have to try it. I mean, have you? It seems like as well, you must have thought at one point or another, what would it be like to live in another country for a, for a little while. Is that something you've done? or I haven't lived in another country. That would be something that I would love to have done. Probably um, not Kazakhstan? Probably not Kazakhstan. Although, if, if you know, if Sammy said, hey, listen, when he was 18, will you come with me and let's live there for a year? I would say yes, definitely. One, one appealing quality of writing books for young readers seems to me to be that you get a very close relationship. Maybe that's not the word. You get close interaction with your readers, or a lot of it, because I mean, you get, it sounds like you speak at schools a lot, right? And those types of, there's, it seems like there's more, there's more of these events you can do that put you in close contact with readers when you're writing for young readers. Is that true? Yeah, I never did anything as a grown-up where I felt like, well, when I was writing for grown-ups, I never, I did some readings, but you don't feel that closeness that you do when you do school visits. Kids are just not in a bad way. They're in your face, but not in a bad way. Right. And there's something about doing those school visits that are exhausting but they're really fulfilling at the same time are there direct are there questions of a directness these young readers ask you that an adult wouldn't if you know what i mean you know the kids get straight to the point right mm-hmm. you know, are there things they ask you that adult readers wouldn't yes or maybe they phrase it differently off the head top of my mind all i can think of is um because i talk about editing they say things like, don't you hate your editor? Or why don't you hate your editor? Or all she does is put you down. They say things like that a lot. They think of the editor as a mean teacher. Yes, they do, absolutely. Because uh, in a way, she's kind of saying the same things as one of their mean teachers might say. But they also, some of the teachers, they love that the best. They like their kids to see that you have to rewrite a lot before it becomes perfect or what you you aspire to it's it brings to mind the sense of how kids from my at least for when i when i think back to being that age myself or the rare interactions i talk to a kid that age that school is kind of the an analogy for everything when school is when you're at school six seven eight hours a day it becomes your worldview you know you think of this writer's editor as a mean teacher uh, a lot of a lot of kids say they want to become teachers many of them do want to become them but many of them they only know the job of teacher because that's who they interact with for most of the day in a book like half a world away you have Jaden, who's he's racked up many experiences that are not school related already i mean do you think is it was it an appeal to you to write to write a, a character, this kid, this protagonist who 
who had experienced so much outside the realm of pretty much any of the readers his same age yeah his same interest do you know what i mean that's that he is a he is one of them but he's not one of them as well i i find it hard i i when i read books for young kids school is always a big part of it and for whatever reason i find it really hard to write about school and in the book i'm working on now even i'm really struggling because i want to put some school in there because it's such a big part of their experience but it's very hard for me to write about school and in a sense maybe the last thing a kid wants to read is about school there are a lot of books about school so some kids i think really like to read about school but i think there's also a huge number of kids who don't want to read about school because they're there every day they're there a long time i I can't write about school for whatever reason. It is such a struggle. It is really, really a big struggle that I'm having right now. I, I mean, I don't particularly like to think back to the school days either. It just it felt like really a dominating force in life and not not, a, not in a particularly good way. I mean, they, you're forced to be there for seven right. hours a day. It's, it's, there's a jail element to it. But I wonder, do you, do you ever consider... Does an idea ever come to your head and you think, oh, you know, that would really, that couldn't be a children's book. I'd have to write an adult novel or not write it. One of the things I'm I'm writing, I'm working on after the one I'm working on now, it's about how in, um, after the internment camps for Japanese, some of the, a few thousand Japanese Americans actually had, were kind of coerced out of their citizenship. And so they were citizens of no country at that point. And they were shipped to Japan, where, of course, the whole country was devastated. And there are things that happened there, just with all the prostitutes, which was a big part of of the economy, really, uh, that my editor's like, you just can't write about some of these things. Ah, I see. There's not enough left you can include in a young reader's novel. It's hard for me to find things right now, but I definitely want to write about it, so I'm going to... Do you want it to be for young readers, or do you want to write? Uh, do you want to return, if only for a book, to the adult novel world? I think I would be terrified at this point <laughs> to return to adult novels, and I also, for some, I, I I'm really into focusing on just one thing, and I know that there are so many writers out there who can do so many different things, but for me, I can only focus on one thing, and I have to have all my focus on it. So I don't I, want to sound essentialist, but that, going by my Japanese friends, it sounds like the Japanese in you, who can really focus and do it well. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe it's a Japanese characteristic. I feel like it's when, whenever I hear about the biggest fan of something, you know, the biggest Beatles fan, uh-huh. the biggest surf rock fan, they're always Japanese. They're <laughs> always, they've always done all the research, they know everything, no one else can hope to reach those ranks of, like, knowing about a thing, knowing about a specific thing. I mean, cultural cultural qualities aside what is what is so appealing to you about no picking as specific a thing as you can and just diving deep into it it's just really it's just an instinct i i feel like if i don't do that then i can't write and when i'm not doing that my writing is really weak and um my editor will send it back and say you have to dig more deeply into this so it's just it's something that has been there since the beginning. When I first decided I wanted to write, I was into short stories. And I wrote one short story every month for about four years. And that 
kind of focus has always been with me regardless of what I'm doing. So right now, I can't read short stories. <laughs> the, it, Off the table. <laughs> I just cannot read short stories. What types of research then are you doing? Are you doing the research you need to do for this book set in Long Beach for young readers and this book, whatever shape it may take, about the Japanese Americans sent back after the war? I mean, are you are you going down two research paths paths at once right now? I am, and the reason for that really is that. Even though it's that the people who were involved in the, you know, being sent to Japan, they're so old now. And if I waited a few years, I might not have access, especially to this one woman who is really helping me a lot. And a few years from now, she might not remember all the things that she remembers now. And in fact, I originally started thinking about writing this book a few years ago. And some of the people who I interviewed are have already passed away. And my book, Weed Flower, which was about the internment camps, um, a number of people who I interviewed for that have passed away. So that's why I'm, re I'm really writing two at once. Usually I wouldn't do that because of that whole focus issue. Right. What does it take to to write, how to put it, given what's already been written about the internment camps, what's a, what's a, what's a way to write about them now? I mean, it's it's such a weighty subject. You have to find do you have to find a new way to write about them whenever you confront that subject? Uh not really, but I'm always I'm always aware that there's been a lot written about them at some at this point. So it's something that I probably would never write about again, like even with with um, the one I'm working on now, my editor said she wants me to start it after the internment camps. What research is going into this book set in Long Beach mostly? What's what are the subjects feeding this book? You don't have to re reveal too much about the book, of course, work in progress. But what's go what's going into it intellectually? Well, it's about a, a boy who's learning falconry, actually. So I want to go to this place in uh, La Jolla where you can go through the basic steps of, of falconry. It's a falconry class, so I have to do that. And I've interviewed a lot of falconers. Um, and they're all very, they're very focused on their falconry. They're obsessed there's, with there's their no, birds. Like, weekend falconer, right? <laughs> yeah, that it's every morning they take their bird out to hunt. And I haven't done that. That's one thing that I still need to do. I need to go on a hunt with somebody, but I haven't found somebody to do that with yet, so. Are they at all like serious dog people, serious falconers? Are there things in common? There are more serious even than dog people. They are so serious about their um, about their falconry. In fact, one woman said that I guess the United Nations declared that falconry was really important, and she thinks it's it's as important as anything in the world. She thinks that it's it's art basically. So. And it's as important as any issue or any type of art. Are you ever tempted with all the research you do for your books to write something purely non-fictional about these subjects, or is it not even an interest of yours? I can't write anything non-fiction, no. But but you're right. It is a lot of it is non-fiction, though. So it's kind of a non-fictiony fiction book. Actually, all my books. It's, uh, to, to, it's the last time I'll mention this book you don't think about much in the heart of the Valley of Love, but you know, Francie, the protagonist, a lot of what she finds in life that drives her is about working at this community college newspaper and sort of doing, doing her own forms of research in her own way or learning all she can about plants, uh, for example. I mean, have you ever given any thought to how the rest of this character's life may have turned out, even if the world slash city, whatever, is crumbling around here. Is this, 
is is if not the book has the character come back to your mind ever has the character come back to my mind i think all my characters are are a lot of them are similar. They all have this deep yearning in them. So I think they seem to resurrect themselves with every book in certain ways. Each, each, each character is a new expression of the same sort of core character you want to write? Each character has these really strong, unfulfilled desires. And I'm not sure where that's coming from. It might just come from... You know, my deep desire to spend more time with my dad when I was little because my mom wouldn't let us see him. From Francie to Jaden to whoever comes next, they've all, they've all got something that is unfulfilled and will go unfulfilled throughout the course of your book anyway. Possibly could be fulfilled after the book, is that, <laughs> or is that, is it, is it of no concern to you at that point whether these desires do get fulfilled after the, after your book ends? Is it more about the expression of that longing? I think that's a big difference between children's books and adults, uh, adult books. That for adult books, the longing, I'm willing to leave it there. But for children's books, I like to fulfill their longings. I see. And was that something the editor initially suggested you might want to do every time, or? No, I've ha I have had people say things to me like, especially with Cracker, um, I'm not going to read it unless the dog lives. <laughs> And so I'll be like, okay, I'll tell you. <laughs> there should just be a sticker on the front that tells you whether the dog makes it or not. It goes, you know, it's, 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 uh, why, why, you know, it's the last thing I want to know from you. Why do, why, people are always concerned about whether the dog lives. The human characters, they could live, they could die. They don't need to know. Why should the, why must the dog always live? I am not sure, but I, I know that nobody wants to read it if the dog doesn't live. So It's reason uh, enough to make the dog live. And, and this is a horrible thing to say, but I couldn't kill off the dog, whereas my sister has accused me of being secretly hostile towards her because in Kita Kita, the sister, is, is she said, you killed me off. Um, <laughs> for some reason, I could kill kill off this human being, but I couldn't kill off a dog. <laughs> Maybe this will be the last thing I ask. Did she ever get over the sister dying in Kira Kira? She has. She's gotten over it, but at the time, she was really annoyed. She was a little... She thought I was being quite hostile towards her personally, and I was like, but it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> this is a character. It's, it's all for the arts, after all, right? <laughs> yes, ab absolutely. I've been speaking here in Larchmont, Los Angeles, California, with Cynthia Karahata, the author of most recently Half a World Away, a novel for young readers, but she's written many novels for young readers and older readers, or, you know, whatever age you are, you can read any of them. Uh, Cynthia, thanks so much. Thank you very much. This has been the Los Angeles Review of Books podcast. I've been Colin Marshall. You can keep up with the LARB at lareviewofbooks.org or with me at colinmarshall.org. Thanks.